0: welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at emmausroad.com. Good evening. Nice to see you all. Um, We are continuing our series tonight uh, that, we've been, uh, that we've been doing are uh, based on the book The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. And if you haven't got the book, I really want to encourage you to get the book. Um, firstly, because it is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. And secondly, because he explains far more eloquently than I'm going to be able to what he means uh, related to what I'm about to talk about. So, um, and another way of sort of tracking with this teaching programme, if you want to, is you go, if you go on to EmmausWay.uk, there are a bunch of resources that you can use either by yourself or in your group, your collective or your small group or your student group, just to begin to um, unpack in an even deeper way what we're covering. Um, I'd love to start by reading a scripture to you. This is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Years ago, I used to have a celebrity friend. And on the face of it, she had everything that you could possibly want. She was fabulously, you know, everyone knew her wherever she went. Uh, She had loads of money. She had people around her the whole time just telling her how awesome she was. Um, And what was so interesting, the better that I, I got to know her, was that for all the things that she had, she still wrestled with the same thing that many of us do, which is that she felt deeply insecure and she spent most of her time looking for approval in other people. Now, all of us are on a continuum with what I'm going to talk, be talking about tonight. Uh, it may be that some of us are at like a level one, so it's hardly an issue, and then for others of us, we're going to be like on level 11 out of 10, where this is something that we're really wrestling with and struggling with. And there's no shame in any of it. The shame is if that we recognize where we are and we do nothing about it. So, We're going to be looking at this secret longing that most of us have tonight and you'll know that you have this longing if you've ever been hurt by something that someone has said about you or by people expressing a less than glowing opinion of you or if you have found yourself comparing yourself to somebody else or if you have that nagging sense in yourself that you're not quite good enough not quite special enough or maybe when someone else succeeds you find yourself being a little bit envious of them or if you find yourself or if you've ever found yourself worrying that someone might be thinking ill of you welcome to the human race And you are somewhere on that continuum between one and ten. And this is what John Ortberg in the book calls uh, an addiction approval, approval addiction. And like many addictions, we will go to extraordinary lengths to try and have that need in us men. Uh, This need for approval goes right back to the beginning of the time. We see it in the Bible the first time that Cain feels outgiven by Abel, and so he kills him. And the primary symptom of this need for approval comes from a tendency to confuse our performance in some aspect of life our, uh, with our worth as a person. When we feel like that, we're actually experiencing something that we were hardwired to experience. We were hardwired to need approval. We were, hard, we were created to look for and want God's approval. All of us, every single one of us. It gets complicated when we start going all sorts of other places to try and have that need met, uh, rather than in him in all sorts of other things. And there are two ways particularly that I want to look at tonight about how this manifests itself. The first one is when we spend our lives or we spend a huge amount of our emotional energy trying to gain people's approval. It may be that there are particular people who are particularly important to us and it is particularly important that they think well of us. And what they think can have a really powerful impact on our sense of self-worth and our self-esteem. The problem is, is that oftentimes we think we know what they're thinking or we guess what they're thinking, but actually what we're doing is we're thinking what they're thinking, which isn't what they are thinking. They could have responded to us a particular way because of any number of things. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they didn't get enough sleep the night before. Maybe they are tired. And we see how they respond to us. And if we're not careful, oh my goodness. And it starts to eat away at our sense of self-esteem, our sense of self-worth. I have this friend. And when the first time I met her, I, just, I was a teacher at the time. And I'd finished a really full-on long day. And there'd been this sort of problem with a child in my tutor group. And so I arrived at Johnny Rockets, which I know doesn't exist anymore. Uh, for those of you who are younger, and I mean by younger, sort of under 30, there's, you're just going to have to bear with me. There are all sorts of cultural references that uh, you will have no idea what I'm talking about like cassette tapes. But, but if that is you, just smile and wave and just nod approvingly and I'll feel good about myself and I'll have ticked that box of need of, for your approval. Anyway, so I turned up at Johnny Rockets and um, I just said hello to a couple of friends and just sat down. And to be honest, I didn't say much that evening because I, I was just emotionally drained from the day. And months later, when I know, knew this person really well, they said, when, I, when we first met, I thought you didn't like me. And I had this huge hang up because I thought you didn't like me. And I said, I'm so sorry that I made you feel that way. What had happened is that I explained what had happened. She's like, oh my goodness, I thank goodness for that. Because I had thought, because you didn't want to, because you didn't say very much to me, that you didn't like me. And I was like, no, actually, I, I, I like, I, I'm talking to you now, I like you. Um, but it was just that I'd had a really long day. But what she had done is she had placed, she'd layered our interaction with a whole lot of meaning that wasn't there. And we do that all the time. So if the first thing that we do is we look for other people's approval, and we'll do it in all sorts of ways. It may not be that. We may exaggerate a story slightly to make ourselves look slightly better or slightly more important. Um, We we, we could do any number of things, but you will know if that is something that you, you feel prone to. and You know that you're prone to it, Or that is something, you know, maybe you're a five or a six out of ten on this. When how somebody or particular people who are important to you react to you, that it begins to dominate your emotional and mental horizon that day, or that week, or that month, or that year. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about a right kind of approval, which is when I see Ben and Jess, and I haven't seen them for a while, I'm really pleased to see them, I say, hey, how are you doing? Or Ben's just led worship, I say, oh, phenomenal worship. That is different. That is me as a friend, affirming a friend. But what I'm talking about is when Ben goes home and I haven't said something to him and it starts to eat, eat him away because he thinks I don't like him because I haven't said anything to him. When, when an interaction that has been quite, quite often, you know, as I said, we have misunderstood, begins to dominate our horizon and we begin to feel anxious or stressed or our self-worth starts to plummet because of something that has happened or not happened, based on a particular personal group of people who are important to us or their opinion particularly matters to us. So that's the first way. The second way that this manifests itself is that we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people. Now, if that's you, again, welcome to the human race. And the good news is even Peter, as in Jesus' friend Peter did this so you'll know the story well but what happens is Jesus is at the last supper and he says one of you is going to betray me and Peter says oh no even if everyone else betrays you I will not betray you I'm your man Jesus and then you know what happens. Jesus gets arrested. Peter follows at a distance, and then he's in the courtyard. And, um, and Jesus has said to him, uh, "Before the cro- cock crows, you will have denied me three times." And he's, he's like, "Oh, don't be silly. You know that's not me. I'm your man." And then what happens is, you know, Jesus is arrested, led to the um, uh, the high priest's house. He sat. He's outside in the courtyard, and someone says to him, "Why aren't you a friend of Jesus?" And he goes, "I don't know who you're talking about." Me? No, no idea. Who? Who? And then what happens is someone else says, I'm sure I saw you with that Jesus. I I don't know who you are talking about. I know nothing about Jesus. Will you please? Then someone else says, I'm sure you're one of his disciples. I don't even know who the man is. Just get off my case. Cock crows. Peter remembers. Jesus looks straight at him. And it says he suddenly remembers what Jesus said and he goes out and he's sort of distraught. Fast forward, so Jesus has been crucified. Peter's given up being a disciple because he's not a very good one of those. He goes back to fishing, which actually he seems to be not very good at either because the only times we ever read about him fishing, he hasn't actually caught anything. And it takes Jesus intervening and saying, have you caught anything? And him saying no and put the net on the other side for him actually to catch anything. Anyway, so he's on the lake. He's caught nothing. He's probably feeling a little bit sorry for himself. And then this figure appears on the shore and says, have you caught anything? And in a moment of rare honesty and candour, he says no. And then this person on the shore says, "'Stick the net on the other side for a catch.'" Does it, doesn't really think. John, who's slightly more like on the ball, says, "'This has happened before. That's Jesus.'" Peter gets super overexcited so he puts all his clothes back on, jumps in, swims to shore and he's in now full I-need-your-approval mode. So the, the, the boat comes in and he's there and he's pulling the nets in by himself. Look at me, Jesus. Aren't I amazing, Jesus? Oh, you really love me, Jesus. Oh. All to get the approval of Jesus. Then there's this awkward meal over a fire. Fire last time Jesus looked at Peter over a fire was when he betrayed him. Awkward meal over a fire. And then Jesus asks Peter three questions. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he gets this and he is restored to relationship with Jesus. And he is then given this extraordinary commission. So you'd think that his self-esteem would be fully restored. This is, after all, St. Peter. And then what happens is they're walking away. Is Jesus, Peter turns to Jesus and says, what about that one? What about the other disciple there, that one? And Jesus goes, it doesn't matter what is happening between me and him. You follow me. Now, do you know what happens when we compare ourselves to each other? When we look around, if you look over your shoulder, this is a little experiment. If you look over your shoulder the whole time and move, this is what happens. You just go round and round and round and round and round in circles. And right now, I'm swimming. Not literally, oh, there we go. We get disorientated. When we spend our lives comparing ourselves to other people, looking over our shoulder the whole time, it's impossible to walk in a straight line. And we get disorientated and we get dizzy. And so when when we compare ourselves to others, it might look like this. We think, if only I was as funny as Mike Crown, my life would be sorted. Or I think, if only... I was as good at playing the guitar as Ben Ford, everybody would think I was amazing. Or you might think, if only I was as caring and compassionate as Sammy Gregg, everything would be okay. Or you think, if only I was as well organized as Holly Dobson. Congratulations, by the way. (laughs) The thing is, when you compare yourself to somebody, what you're actually doing is you are comparing all the stuff that you know about yourself, all the stuff that you don't want, you spend your whole time self-managing so people don't see, you're comparing that version of yourself with their greatest hits. And what I mean by that is you are comparing yourself with their presented self. Their presented self is, you didn't see what they were like when they woke up this morning. You didn't see the frustrated conversation they had with somebody. You didn't see them getting cross when someone cut them up driving. You didn't see them. You you saw the bit that they wanted you to see. They saw the bit when they're presenting. And what I mean by presenting is not standing in front of people, but just when they are out and about because all of us spend a huge amount of time self-managing, don't we? Making sure that we present well. So you are comparing yourself unfairly with somebody who isn't actually necessarily fully like that. None of us is quite as charming or good-looking or as funny as we think they are. Just ask my wife. (laughs) Thank you. Some of you are still with me. And oftentimes, they are feeling the same way about us. So my, one of my really good friends is a guy called Wayne, and he is, the fu- he is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. He is just so funny. And uh, first time I met him, I felt super intimidated because he was just making everyone laugh all the time. And I'm like, I'm, you know, on a good day, with too much caffeine and sugar, I can be relatively amusing for very short periods of time. <laughs> But he's just funny off the cuff all the time and super quick. And I felt really intimidated. And once I got to know him quite well, I said, You know what? When I first met you, I was so intimidated by you. He goes, Do you know what, Bill? The thing is, I was really intimidated by you because you just seem really confident. You seem really relaxed. You seem really laid back. And I'm like, I was just a duck paddling underwater. And he's like, So was I. So we are wrestling. We're all wrestling with this stuff. The problem with living in this place is that huge parts of our, our day or our week or our life can be impacted by it and it can be paralysing. It can go from just comparing ourselves to somebody to, being, to starting feeling really anxious and self-conscious and feeling our own sense of self-worth, so sort of dipping below the freezing line. And when I find myself doing either or both of those two things, either seeking the approval of other people in an unhealthy way, out of a place of need, or comparing myself to somebody else, I recognise that I need to take a step back, step away, and go and be reminded that, in the words of the writer of the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That I am known and loved by God that he rejoices over me with singing, that he says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that he says he's loved me with an everlasting love, and I need to go and remind myself of those promises, those scriptures, and begin to let them take hold of me again. Maybe even just for a few minutes to do that. And in doing that, I find I get a fresh perspective on myself and on the situation. We are, none of us are immune from this. And that's, you know, as I said, welcome to the human race. So practically, how do we begin to step into freedom? How do we begin to be free from this unhealthy need for other people's approval or comparing ourselves to other people? Well, first of all, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, we need to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Well, that sounds brilliant. How do, we, how do we do that? Do we like get a lasso out and you know take woo take captive our thoughts? I want to give you a few tips, ways that I have found help me take captive my thoughts. The first one is this: refuse to let other people's approval or our perception of it have power over us. So often the people who who we get caught in this trap. Worrying about whether someone approves of us. And we don't even know them that well. I was meeting with someone recently and they were just talking me through how they'd wrestle with this. And I, as I listened to it for I was like, well, how? You know, asked a few questions. I was like, I eventually said, why are you letting this person have this much of a hold over you? And they probably don't even know. So the first thing is like... Use that prefrontal cortex that God put in your brain that is the rational part, that is, the, you know, the part that steps out of the emotional moment and just begin to think, why are you letting? I refuse to let somebody have that kind of a hold over you. You can do this by recognising what is happening. I have conversations with myself all the time, not out loud because that would be weird, but I have conversations with myself all the time. And I've got a friend who's a coach who taught me this thing which I found extraordinarily helpful. When I am beginning to feel like that, and I do feel like that sometimes, what I do is I call it stepping into the circle. So in my imagination I step into a circle and I observe myself and I do this thing called stop. And what stop is literally stop, recognize what is going on, then think. think What is happening, Bill, in this moment? In this moment, I am beginning to feel anxious because I think that they don't like me. Why do you think that they don't like you? I'm thinking that they don't like me because they don't seem to be smiling when I'm talking. Bill, why may they not be smiling other than that maybe they don't like you? They may not be smiling because they're concentrating on what I'm saying. They may not be smiling because they're tired. They may not be smiling yet because they're not sure if I'm going to say something else yet. Observe. How is that making me feel? I'm beginning to feel anxious. I'm beginning to go into emotional overdrive to try and compensate for this lack that I think is happening. Don't deny the feeling. Don't wrestle with the feeling. That's just going to take too much emotional energy. Just own it. Recognise this is what I'm doing. But then you have the power to turn in the other direction, recognising all this, and then proceed. Move on. Right. I'm recognising this is what's going on. I'm going to do my best to carry on, to proceed. I'm not going to let this paralyze me now or for the rest of the day or for the ne- until the next time I see this person to go through this whole rigmarole emotionally and mentally again. The next thing that I do is I think, am I tired? Am I hungry? Am I both? Because all these things have an impact on our neurobiology. When we are tired or when we are hungry, if we are stressed, our body produces a hormone called cortisol which makes us feel more stressed. So I did this intermittent fasting thing. I think I remember last time I was here, I told you about sixpackabs.com and how I was going to try intermittent fasting. I stopped intermittent fasting because what I found was although I was losing weight, I was, getting really, I was starting to feel anxious. And when I began to investigate why, it was because I wasn't eating enough. And because I wasn't eating enough, my body was producing loads of cortisol. Same thing happens, happens if we don't sleep enough. If you, if you want to read a really interesting book about this, read a book called Why We Sleep. Don't let the first three pages terrify you, but do uh, let it uh, inform a change in your sleeping habits. The next thing is remind ourselves that this is only our perception of what we think the other person might be thinking and we have gone into second-guessing mode. Next thing, ask ourselves what the actual basis of our thinking is. Have they actually said something that would make us think that they don't like us or they do not approve of us in that moment? Or is it just our imagination, which is incredibly powerful? Just the sort of person that I am, I see meaning in everything. You know, I. You know, when I was, I'm slightly, I know myself slightly better now. But when I was relatively younger, I would, I'd read things over and over and over again, and layer it. Maybe like they put that, but the, the comma was there, and and I would kind of go into emotional overdrive trying to understand. Have they actually? Have they said I don't like you? Have they said I think you're an idiot? Or do we just think we're an idiot, and so we're putting that on them? Next thing. Is it based on something they've said? And think, what did they actually say? So one of the tricks that we play with ourselves is we go over, we repeat and repeat and repeat in our brain that thing that that person said, or the thing that that person did, or both. And, and what we do when we do that is we feed the monster. In my experience, there is a healthy balance between sometimes we need to talk about something to get it off our chest, and that's a good thing. And then if we carry on talking about it, we are feeding it. We don't talk ourselves out of things. We, generally speaking, talk ourselves into thinking things. And the more we think it, the more it gets magnified. So that's where you stop. Stop, think, observe, proceed. Next thing, I ask myself did they say what they said because they actually care about me? So, a really trivial example. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a mental health panel in the morning, and I've been having some um, public speaking training. And um, I misunderstood something that the person who taught has been teaching me said. So when we did the panel, and I don't know if any of you were there in the morning, but if you were, you might have noticed it. I would ask a question to the person and then I would look out at the congregation. Because uh, what I had misunderstood the person saying is you need to make sure if you're nodding, that you're giving them cues of what the person's saying is a good thing. But I was looking at the people rather than looking at the person I was interviewing. Uh, And I got home and Nikki, my wife, was like, that was just really weird. And I was like, it felt really weird. Like, why did I do that? And then, um, and then I was chatting with Pete, and he said, can I give you some feedback? And I said, I'd love some feedback, and he said, when you interviewed that person, you need to look at them, because when you looked out, you just looked a little bit smug, and that's not actually who you are, and I know your heart. Now, in that moment, I had a choice. Because Pete is my boss, and because his opinion of me matters, I could be like, oh, my goodness. Pete has just criticised me. He does, I knew he didn't like me. I've always known he didn't like me. And this just confirms that he does not like me. He doesn't like me. I knew, like, and I think about this, and he did that, that. And, and I just, my mind starts. Or I can say, do you know what? That is amazing. He cares about me enough to help me get better. What he is doing is he is trying to help me get better at what I am doing. It's not personal, it's helpful. So recognize what the person's motive for saying what they're saying is. Oftentimes, when we think about it, it's actually a really positive thing rather than a negative thing. And finally, ask yourself, does it actually really matter what they think? Does it really matter? I don't know that person that well. So they didn't like what I said. Well. You know, I'm that's, I'm. that's a shame. I'm sorry about that. But so what? And I know that sounds callous and hard, but actually we have to work out whether who this person is, whether actually it matters what they think. And of course we, want to, we don't want to be arrogant, but let's not let it chip away at our self-worth. The people who know you and love you are for you. And what they say will always come out of that. Taking our thoughts captive also means accepting a compliment when you are given one. Now, we're, now I'm English, and I went to boarding school, so I'm very repressed. And Freud would have a field day. But... Um, well, uh, and, uh, <laughs> They're just laughing because they know it's true. Um, and so, what that means is, is that when someone offers me a compliment, like, no, 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 <laughs> I, I, I go into like self deferential mode. And actually, all that is is pride. Because I don't want someone to think that I have got a big head. It's, oh, no, 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 no. And I turn, oh, no, no, you're ama- you're even more amazing. Just say thank you. I mean, let's be honest. Most people are not saying nice things to people most of the time, so let's take it when someone says something nice to us, about us. Bank it. One of the things I teach in the school of um, prayer and prophetic is the difference between filing and flushing. If so, so, someone says something just off, recognize that's just off and flush it. If someone says something nice to you, a compliment and compliments you, file it. Remember it. I keep Every, every encouraging email I've ever got, I keep. Every encouraging note that I've ever been given, I keep. Because I know there are going to be days when actually pulling one out and reading them is going to just make a little bit of difference. It's going to tip me over the edge into the positive zone again. Really quickly, in parentheses, an Easter egg, especially for you, I'm going to give you a couple of tips that my friend Roger, who I spoke to this week, Roger Bretherton, uh, gave me about how to give good feedback how to compliment somebody well. A good place to start is you're brilliant. That's kind of like smashing them over the head with encouragement. It's like as broad as it is, wide as it is deep. And if you can think of nothing else, that's a great place to start. But what he taught me that I found so helpful is name it, say why it's important, and say what they can do about it. So for example... Mike, you are an amazing student pastor. That's the name it. What I've noticed is since you've joined the team, you have brought real value to the team. You are a real encourager. And what I've also noticed is a lot more students, uh, you know, you take them out for lunch and it's been amazing to see how you have grown the student work. That's the second part. The third part is I think that if you keep doing this and you build a really strong team, you're going to have an amazing student ministry on your hands. One, two, three, boom. I mean all of that. That's not very difficult. But it's just thinking about what encouragement looks like, how to give feedback. Conversely, if you are with a friend and they have just made a bit of a mess of something, oh my goodness, you made such a mess of that. Oh my, I'm so glad that was you, not me. Like, do not do that hey, did you notice, I, I couldn't help but notice, but, the, but when you said that, you kind of crashed through all sorts of people's personal space barriers. I was just wondering if maybe next time you talk, you think a little bit about what you actually want to say before you say it because actually you've got a lot of really good things to say and I felt like that wasn't your best self. That's good feedback, isn't it? Next thing, resign from impression management. You are not a brand, you are a member of the human race. Now, I like social media as much as the rest of you, probably. And if you follow me on social media, you will know that I really post photographs of three things. My family, my walks, and now our dog. (laughs) It's pretty boring. But my sense of self-worth is not derived by how many people like me. Or even if particular people I know who follow me, don't like it. By not liking something, they are not disliking it, they just haven't liked it. They're like, oh, another picture of a you know, field. Great, seen lots of those, Bill, love them. Don't feel the need to press that like button. But we can all spend quite a lot of time, Would you remember I talked about our presented self, and emotional energy investing in social media platforms. And then allowing that, giving that the power to shape how we feel about ourselves. If that is you, and I recognise we're all on a continuum, can I make a suggestion for you? Stop using social media for a period of time. If you do that, you will find you'll suddenly be a lot less stressed about whether anyone's liked your picture or not because you haven't posted anything for them to like or not like. Along with resigning from impression management, what I find myself doing something, uh, this sometimes, particularly if I want the person to like me, is rather than if they say something that I've, I don't agree with, I don't say, actually, I don't agree with you. I say, that's really interesting. One might argue that. Or I say, that's so interesting. I've heard other people say this. And of course, it's about being polite and not saying you're an idiot. I disagree with you. But actually, what we're doing is we are buffering our comments to protect ourselves. We all know what's going on. We're all playing the same game. So can we agree to stop playing that? Just say, I think you're great. I just don't agree. Um, but I think you're an amazing person. Just be honest. Another really classic one: "Sorry, I'm late." In my case, I got stuck behind a tractor. I, and, but you know, which make you know because I wanted you to like me, so I wasn't late because I was just running, you know, disorganised. I was late because I got stuck behind a tractor. If you were late, just say, "Sorry, I'm late." Or, or, or if you're early and you're worried about people thinking you're some sort of keen person, don't comment on it at all. <laughs> when you hand in an essay, if you're a student, don't say to your friends, oh, I'm all, all, all night working on this, it's probably rubbish. Just hand in the essay. Or if it's brilliant, don't say, oh, that's amazing, I didn't really spend any time on that at all. Just enjoy the grade. Resign from impression management. Finally, practice secrecy. And what I mean by that is, oftentimes we can end up doing things for the response that it elicits from other people. I'm not talking about giving someone you really care about a lovely present. It's my birthday on Wednesday, just saying. It's my birthday on Wednesday, I'm just saying. So, so there's, there's lovely, something lovely about giving someone a gift and, then, and them enjoying it. But if you think that you, are, that, that you are maybe slightly further up the continuum than you'd like, the best way to deal with your need for other people's approval is to do things that, that other people don't know about. So they, you, you, can't hit, you, know, you can't have that fix met by somebody else's approval. So what I mean by that is, for example, oftentimes, people in church, including myself, say, oh, oh, I was just praying for you the other day. Oh, thanks. Oh, you're welcome. I'm obviously very spiritual. You don't tell them. Just pray for them. There's a reason why Jesus said, when you pray, do it in secret so no one knows. God knows. He thinks it's awesome you prayed for someone. The other person doesn't necessarily need to know, particularly if you are telling them just so that they will meet that scratch, that itch that we have. Or when you book into the prayer room in the prayer week that's coming up, don't write your name. Just write an initial. And if you're booking more than one hour, use a different initial just to really mess with the system. then no one's going to look at the thing and think, oh my goodness, they're so split." they've been there six hours. Just a thought, just putting it out there. One of my friends got a bonus, give generously and give secretly. So uh, an example of this is that one of my friends works in um, in the city and got... Um, he told me his bonus, and I, I just laughed out loud because it was more money than I make in well, quite a lot of years, actually. And, um, and I said, what did he do with it? And because he's a really good friend, and I'm not going to think any more or less of him based on what he said. He said he had actually decided that he was going to give his bonus away. But what, what he did was he he, he he was at church the following week. And he just looked, at the, at the particularly for families, who he you know, he, he thought might be struggling. And then what he did is he stuffed 50 quid notes, like lots of them, into different envelopes, wrote the family's name, or, or asked someone discreetly what that family's name was. They didn't know why. And he then, he then, in the evening when the church office was shut, he posted a big manila envelope full of smaller envelopes filled with 200, 300, 400 pounds, with different people's names on it, through the door. And they all got an anonymous gift. 200 people in the church. No one to this day knows who did that, but they're all grateful. And it meant that he could do do something nice for people without getting the credit for it. I'm now going to break my own rule to tell you a story about myself, but but it's only to make the point. So I was in this, um, I was early for, which is unusual in itself, I was early for a meeting I was having with someone in Covent Garden a year or so ago. And so I went to Wagamama's and there was this guy who walked in and he walked in with a big clap, you know, like people, they walk in and they're in a bad mood and it's not, you know, there's not just a grey cloud hanging over them there there's thunder and lightning and rain and hail and, you know, he was just in a bad mood with everybody. And he was rude to the person in the queue, he was rude to the person who took him to his table, he was rude to the person who was you know, looking after, you know, taking his order. And I just thought, this guy just needs something nice to happen to him today. So what I did at the end of that, and he was, just, you know, like, like, he was just being extraordinarily not nice to be around in my observation from sitting the table away from him. So when, when I paid, I said to the waitress, um, can I pay for his meal as well? And the waitress said, what, his meal? And I said, yeah, his meal. And, they said, and she said, why on earth would you do that? And I said, because he just looks like he needs something nice to happen to him today. And I said, but you are not to tell him who paid. And then what happened was I paid and I watched her go up and say, someone has paid for your meal. it was worth it for that. It's difficult to be in a bad mood when someone's paid for your meal. He has no idea to this day who paid for his meal, uh, but I hope other people have paid for his meal subsequently as well. Do things in secret. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you leave a chocolate on the desk of someone you work or your work colleagues. Get there before they do. Leave a chocolate on everyone's desk. Maybe every now and again you write a note and you just leave it in there on their desk on the pigeonhole saying, this is something I really appreciate you about you. In that case, it might be good to sign your name, not so that they know who to thank, but so they're not freaked out that there's some person in the office spending a lot of time looking at them and thinking what they respect about that person. But you get the idea. Do gestures secretly. Serve secretly. Set yourself a mission to see, like if you live in a student house. See, tidy the kitchen without anyone knowing. Like, I lived in a student house, and it was like a biohazard. I mean, it wasn't like a biohazard. It actually was a biohazard. Uh, uh, how any of us are still alive now, I don't know. But, but um, tidy up the kitchen when no one else is there. Don't say, oh, that's amazing. Anyone notice I tidy the kitchen? Just quietly do that. Or the bathroom, which is even probably worse. Well, at least in the boys' men's student residence, it was a lot worse, actually, in the, well, close call. LAUGHTER um, or if you live in a house with... Like, one of the things I try to do every now and again is, is I, I empty the dishwasher. And I empty the dishwasher because I know my, my wife's love language is acts of service. And I, do, and I don't say, you know, so I emptied the dishwasher for you today. I just get on with the day. Don't don't make a fuss about it, just do it. You find the more that you do this, the more you find that you begin to be free of this need to gain other people's approval or compare yourself to other people. Now we're going to do a little bit of homework. It's not difficult homework, but we're going to do homework because the life we always wanted is a life where we begin to or continue on that journey of freedom where we aren't all caught up in this stuff. So you have permission. In fact, I want you all, please, to get your mobile phones out. And what you are going to do is you are gonna set yourself a task this week. Think about something that I have said in terms of taking your thought captive resigning from impression management or secret things, you're going to think for 30 seconds, what one thing could you do, what, not could you, what one thing are you going to do this week that might help you on your journey? Maybe that, that thing is also a blessing to somebody else. But I want you to pick a day in your diary, in your phone, and you are going to write down to remind yourself to do that thing and you're going to set an alert and uh, you're going to feel great about the fact that you did something that possibly nobody else even knew about. So you have uh, 30 seconds starting. I can't actually see the second hand on my phone. Uh, now. Sometimes we'll have a chance to pray for you if you want, but sometimes ministry is just doing something because it ministers to us when we do it. No one is going to ask you probably next week whether you did this, but I want to encourage you to do it, whatever it is you've decided to do. And if you find it works, for you do it again and again. Let me pray, and then I'm going to hand back to Holly to work out how we bring this into land. Father, thank you that you love us. And in amongst the craziness of life and stuff that's going on, you want to tell us that you approve of us, that you love us. And Father, in those moments when we feel that insecurity beginning to rise and we find ourselves needing a fix of other people's approval or where we find ourselves beginning to compare ourselves to other people, help us to stop. Help us to take ourselves away to be with you, to be reminded who we are and whose we are. (coughs) And in doing so, stepping into greater freedom. In Jesus' name. Amen.